Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Government is the problem. This will not stand. This will not stand, this aggression against uh, Kuwait. Indeed, I did have a relationship with Mr. Lewinsky that was not appropriate. America is a strong force for peace. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. And my vice president has shot someone. Do you smell what Barack is cooking? You didn't build that. Give you all a big kiss, the women and the men. I'll, kiss. I'll even kiss the men. I'll kiss those big, powerful men. Sit down, you'll hear what I have to say. You're listening to the Oil & Gas Geopolitics Podcast, the show for those who want a spirited, irreverent, humorous, and occasionally informative discussion on the latest geopolitical issues that are impacting the energy sector today. Here is your host, Jordan Driscoll. This podcast is brought to you by T, the Empowerment Alliance. The Empowerment Alliance fights for affordable, clean, domestic, and abundant energy for America's energy independence. They want to keep the politics in this podcast and out of the energy industry. And boy, wouldn't that be nice. Now, if you want to learn more about what the Empowerment Alliance is fighting for or support the work they're doing, please visit their website. There'll be a link in the show notes, and I can tell you they are incredibly passionate about promoting American energy independence. I hope you'll check them out, sign up for their newsletter, and show them some love. They make this podcast possible, and we really appreciate that. Welcome to the program, my huddled masses. I am the aforementioned Jordan Driscoll, your diminutive ATM of reckless opinion. Grab yourself a cup of coffee and let's get into it. And tonight I am sipping on some uh, some chai latte, and that's what I've got going on here. So a couple of a uh, couple of housekeeping items. This week we're going to finish up the third part of our uh, ongoing trilogy or our ongoing series. Uh, the initial trilogy of our infamous scandals. Next week will be my long-mentioned episode on why we hate Woodrow Wilson, or at least why I hate him and why I think you probably ought to as well. And then following that, we're going to get back to a few more episodes on the more modern geopolitical crises of the day. Um, At some point later on in the year, we'll do a few more of these scandal episodes just to keep it uh, mixed up a little bit, but that's what's on the horizon for the next couple of weeks. Now, in this episode, we're going to talk about the often-mentioned but vaguely defined Iran-Contra affair of the 1980s. So, let me have a little sip of my chai here. Mmm. Tasty. All right. So, the Iran-Contra affair. The Iran-Contra affair deals with seven different countries, um, and they're countries you wouldn't normally uh, put together. Okay? So... The first one, uh, well, the seven are the United States, the Soviet Union, Iran, Iraq, Israel, Lebanon, and Nicaragua. And you need to have a little bit of an understanding of sort of what was happening with each of these nations in order uh, for this to make sense. So we'll start with the U.S. So the U.S. obviously was in the midst of the Cold War with the Soviet Union under Carter and um, you know in the early 80s transitioning to Reagan. And the main goal here for the U.S. was to ultimately stop the spread of communism. On the other side of the spectrum, you had the Soviet Union, who was looking to expand communism and uh, kick off the worldwide socialist revolution where the uh, workers would seize the means of production and bring about the socialist utopia that they were certain was right around the corner. Then you've got Iran. So what's happening in Iran at this time? So in Iran, you've, uh, you've got them just recovering from the Islamic Revolution. As we talked about in previous episodes, 
the Shah was in power up until 1979, where he was replaced during the revolution by the uh, Ayatollah Khomeini, who came to power. Now, what's interesting and relevant about this is that during the time that the Shah was in control, he was propped up by the United States, and the imperial Persian or the imperial Iranian military was predominantly funded and composed of huge amounts of U.S. military uh, equipment. You had U.S. guns, jets, missiles, tanks, all the things. The Iranian military was entirely made up of U.S. equipment. Now, this will become very important a little later on. Um, At any rate, uh, they had a large and powerful military apparatus with U.S. technology. And once the Islamic Revolution kicked off, Jimmy Carter, in response to the hostile attitudes of the Ayatollah towards the U.S., um, which granted their beef goes back further to the U.S. meddling in Iranian politics, keeping the Shah in charge, overthrowing the democratically elected government to install the monarchy, et cetera, et cetera. We, like I said, will eventually have an episode on all that. But at any rate, the hostile attitude was due to ostensibly U.S. meddling in Iranian um, affairs. That being said, Carter wasn't really through with it, so he declares Iran a um, terrorist nation and puts an embargo on any weapon sales to them. What this effectively means is that all, although Iran had a really large and powerful and capable U.S. technology-based military, they were not able to get training or supplies or spare parts or additional ammunition or any of that sort of stuff. So eventually the idea was that their military would ultimately sort of um, – crumble and decay from lack of of being able to replace things or or get new parts. Uh, that was the idea anyway. And Reagan would, in theory, continue this embargo when he took office in 81. So that's the status of Iran. Meanwhile, you've got Iraq. Now, Iraq was previously a monarchy as well, but the king was overthrown in 1958 by a military coup. Uh, the military ruled for about a good 10 years, and by 1968, the Socialist Ba'ath Party overthrew the military and seized the government, eventually leading to Saddam Hussein, who took control of both the Ba'ath Party and the government in 1979. 79 was a big year for things happening. Now, Saddam Hussein was a former sheep herder who rose to power and became the president um, in 79, and he very much disliked Khomeini because at the end of the day, uh, Khomeini was a hardline radical, and he believed that all of the Arab world ought to be under this really stringent, radicalized Muslim philosophy, and that's how the government should be. And Saddam, while an asshole and a dictator, um, was not that hardline religious. He toted the line for the for the faith, but at the end of the day, he wanted a fairly secular government, and the fact that Khomeini felt like Saddam should be toppled just like all the other um, um, monarchs, even though Saddam wasn't a monarch necessarily, uh, that put a lot of strain on Saddam. He didn't want uh, that to be a thing, and that put him in a bad place because Iran had, again, this really massive Americanized military that was potentially going to be a real big issue. Now, under Saddam's orders, Iraq launched an invasion of Iran for the stated purpose publicly of stopping the spread of radical Islam. Uh, He started this off in 1980. The Iran-Iraq war would drag on for eight years from 1980 to 1988 before ending in bloody stalemates with both sides claiming they had won, Um, but both sides really just 
being in a shitty position afterwards. During the course of a war, Iran would use things like human wave tactics to uh, overrun Iraqi positions, which would cause a massive loss of life among their soldiers. And Iraq would resort to mustard gas, CS gas, nerve gas uh, attacks on both military and civilian locations and attempt to stop themselves from being overrun by this much larger and uh, at least initially better equipped military. Uh, ultimately, this war would leave Iraq in economic shambles and would eventually lead to them invading Kuwait during the Gulf War, but that's a different story for a, a different time. Now, the U.S. didn't want to see the spread of radical Islam either, and they provided military intelligence and aid to Saddam, and this was openly done. We were openly selling weapons and ammunition to uh, Iraq and to Saddam in order to uh, stop the spread of radical Islam at the time. And of course, um, we're providing intelligence about troop movements and all that sort of thing, as well as putting an embargo on Iranian supplies so that their military would constantly be in a state of degradation. Uh, now, eventually, uh, to make things easier, the U.S. even took Iraq off the state terrorist list to make weapon sales legal and easier. And I mean, this is a big, hairy deal because Iraq was not actually stopping any of its support to different terrorist organizations. They were simply fighting an enemy that was convenient for the U.S. to see be weakened, i.e. Iran. And it's kind of summed up best by Henry Kissinger, who was quoted as saying, it's a pity they can't both lose. And that tells you exactly pragmatically where the U.S. you know, political thinking was at the time. So that's the situation with Iran and Iraq at this snapshot in history. At the same time, you've got Lebanon, who is in the midst of a territorial dispute with Israel. The Iranian-backed terrorist organization Hezbollah, which we still know and have lots of fun with today, over the course of a decade kidnapped 104 different foreign hostages, including, at a minimum, at least 25 of them that were Americans. They also overran American embassy and bombed it. And the purpose of the kidnappings was to gain leverage to prevent the U.S. from continuing to provide support to Israel and weaken U.S. public opinion against being involved in the Middle Eastern disputes. Now, of course, as we all know, the U.S. was heavily involved in Middle Eastern disputes predominantly because, one, they didn't want to see the region fall under further Russian influence, and two, you guessed it, oil. There's a lot of oil over there, and the U.S. wants to make sure they've got a good stranglehold on the supply. Uh, you know, it all just comes back to energy, doesn't it? So, Israel. Now, they were occupying southern Lebanon after a number of Hezbollah and Palestinian militants carried out attacks on Israel from that region. So, they moved troops north, took a chunk of the nation, and were occupying it. Uh, in order to try and stave off uh, further pressure, Hezbollah slash Lebanon kidnapped a whole bunch of people, using them as hostages to try and settle everyone down and keep them out of their nation. Now, that all is convoluted and nonsensical, but it makes some kind of sense. But how does Nicaragua factor in? Well, Nicaragua in 1979, which was a big year for socialist revolutions, well, Soviet and Cuban-backed members of the Sandinista National Liberation Front, the Sandinistas for short, seized control of the government and began to implement a number of massive economic and governmental reforms, most of them socialist in nature. And not all these reforms were terrible either. The Sandinistas took the literacy, literacy la, 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 la. let's try that again, the literacy rate from 49.7 to 87.1% in the span of only six years. 
They implemented a socialist healthcare regime that dropped the infant mortality rate down by double digits, and the average income for workers across the country doubled. Now, those are all the good things, but obviously, not to sound like a you know a, a, a pro socialism leaflet over here, there were some bad things too, <clears throat> as you can imagine. There were massive redistribution of lands from landholders in the upper class to the working class. They implemented a spy-on-your-neighbor program to weed out any quote-unquote counter-revolutionary activities, and there was the forced migration of native tribes in order to seize new farmlands from the natives, not to mention mass execution of natives and counter-revolutionaries who refused to go along with the wealth redistribution scheme. President Jimmy Carter, for whatever reason, initially supplied aid to the Sandinista government because initially all that was coming out of Nicaragua were all the good things they were doing, and they were doing some good things. But once the abuses came to light, he eventually, uh, he and Congress, shut down all funding to the Sandinista government. Meanwhile, uh, by 1980-1981, a number of counter-revolutionaries formed something of a plucky little rebel alliance called the Contras, whose goal was to bring down the Sandinista government. The Contras consisted of former landowners, National Guard, military members, basically anyone who lost out during the Sandinista, uh, Sandinista redistribution of wealth. So that's the situation in Nicaragua at that time. Now, in 1981, President Ronald Reagan took office, and he had two big issues that he cared a whole lot about. The first one is he wanted to do what Jimmy Carter couldn't do, and that was get the American hostages in Lebanon released. This was a big, hairy deal for him. During the course of his campaign and even his presidency, he was meeting with the families of these hostages and assuring them that as the president, he was imbued with the power and would do everything in his abilities to bring these American uh, people home and home safe. This was something that he was incredibly passionate about. Secondly, he was absolutely apoplectic about the spread of communism in the new world. Now, Reagan is famous for, you know, on, on numerous occasions talking about the evils of the Soviet Union. Reagan was even interviewed and said that he genuinely believed that the Soviet Union was directly referenced in the book of Revelation in the Bible as uh, what would bring about the apocalypse in the end times and that he had to stop their spread. I mean, he was really, really intent that communism was the worst possible thing in the world. And it's not great, but I don't know if it's quite, you know, biblical apocalypse level. Uh, at any rate, Reagan may have been good for taxes, but he obviously wasn't much of one for prophecy because a decade later the Soviet Union would collapse, which makes it kind of hard for them to be the, the big baddie in the tribulation. But whole other story. Now, how much Reagan actually knew about the scheme is still debatable, but his much as he wanted to stop communism, he was a huge, huge proponent of the Contras, and he was – asking for Congress to authorize weapons and intelligence and all the sort of things that they wanted to send to the Contras to help them fight this Sandinista socialist government. The problem that they ran into is the Contras weren't any better. The Contras were doing really bad stuff of their own. They were mining schools and they were rolling into churches and hospitals and government buildings and just indiscriminately shooting people regardless of if they were civilian or military. And they were doing a lot of really bad things. It was getting a lot of media um, attention. I mean, mining schools, not super great. That 
that kind of makes you look like maybe you're an asshole and you're worse than the people you're fighting. At any rate, the American public was not super on board with the Contras. They seemed like they were just as big a scumbags as the Sandinistas, and Congress wasn't really on board with it either. Reagan was convinced that even as bad as the Contras were, they were fighting communism, which made them the good guys, and the U.S. needed to give them full full support. Congress, however, refused and passed a series of uh, amendments called the Boland Amendments, which specifically forbid any kind of support of the Contras, and it made it uh, illegal and reduced all funding for it. Well, this is problematic. Reagan still had no way of getting the hostages out of, uh, out of Lebanon, and he really wanted to stop the, the spread of communism. And at the end of the day, he was very concerned that that communism would spread from Nicaragua to other nations. And, you know, there was some logical rationale behind that. I mean, this was kind of a big deal. The, the Sandinista government took over and all of a sudden a lot of good stuff started happening. Healthcare was getting better. Infant mortality rates were dropping. People were making more money. Um, the economy was going up. They were actually more productive than they were under the capitalist system. There was, um, higher literacy rates and test scores were going up and the kids were learning more. I mean, this was sort of a the the hardcore capitalist nightmare was seeing a super successful communist country, seeing a country go from from capitalist to socialist and then be really successful. That was a nightmare scenario in the Cold War. Nobody on the Western side wanted to see that because that was going completely counter to all the other things. I mean, you look at in other countries that went communist, and it's always been kind of a shit show. This was the one that seemed to be working out. Now, all the other bad stuff started to come up in the news about the you know spying your neighbor and the forced migrations and all that, and that would eventually temper all that. But at least initially, this really panicked Reagan because he was convinced that if other nations in Central and South America saw socialism as working and being successful, then it would spread like a wildfire throughout the new world, and this would trigger the end times and, you know, all the other stuff that he was convinced was going to happen if the Soviets were successful. So he put together several different plans. Now, one was Operation Staunch, which kicked off in 1983. It was a massive diplomatic effort by President Reagan to bully pulpit anyone from selling military hardware or supplies to Iran. The idea was that they were going to choke Iran out and decrease their military efficiency um, as they began running out of supplies. And this was a huge deal. It was going to all the Western nations, Eastern nations, and basically putting pressure on everybody to not sell weapons or arms to Iran. And for the most part, it worked. Nobody would sell stuff to them. Everyone followed the U.S. lead and did exactly what was asked of them and didn't sell weapons to Iran. The Iranian military was dropping in efficiency, which is what precipitated them having to use human wave attacks and just charge Iraqi positions. It was a huge success in the sense that it did stop the flow of weapons and supplies to Iran and force their military into a more and more degraded state. Meanwhile, President Reagan tasks the National Security Council, specifically Robert McFarlane, who was the National Security Advisor, uh, who would eventually be replaced when McFarlane retired by John Poindexter, um, and of course, Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North, a Marine staffer who would be made directly responsible for overseeing a couple of critical missions. Now, Reagan gave them a pretty broad mandate. He said, frankly, he wanted two things. He wanted the hostages in Lebanon released, wanted that, 
And two, he wanted the spread of socialism and communism in Nicaragua put to an end and the Contras to be victorious in their conflict. This was problematic because how do you do these things? Congress made it quite illegal to to support the Contras. Uh, The Contras were effectively considered more or less a terrorist organization, so you couldn't do anything with them. And secondly, um, there was no money for it. Congress took the money away. They wouldn't let that happen. So this was this was really quite a challenge. So National Security Council and specifically the front man on it, Colonel North, are trying to come up with a plan. And they do come up with a plan that on one hand is kind of clever and on the other hand is kind of like a fucking wily e. coyote scheme. Okay. So here's the deal. The scheme was as follows. The U.S. was going to sell weapons to Iran. Now, obviously, Iran was uh, under an international weapons embargo, and the U.S. had publicly been telling everyone, don't sell weapons to Iran because they're the bad guys. But Colonel North and company uh, came up with the idea that perhaps if they could find a way to sell weapons to Iran to help them continue defending themselves against Iraq, who the U.S. was fucking also selling weapons to, that maybe this would help ease some of the the diplomatic tensions between the U.S. and Iran, and maybe there would be a pathway to friendship there, and maybe um, when Khamenei died, the next ruler would take over and they would think more favorably of the U.S. because the U.S. sold them weapons. The other idea was that they could, by selling weapons and agree to doing that for Iran, Iran would be required to put pressure on Hezbollah to release the hostages that were in Lebanon. And Iran more or less tacitly agreed that they would do this. Okay. Now, the other side of this was the U.S. was going to sell these weapons with a significant markup on them. And the U.S. would take all the money they made from selling those weapons to Iran, and they would take the profit off of it and funnel that profit directly to the Contras in order to fund the Contras with Uh, money and weapons and ammunition and all of that. And the idea sort of in general was that, well, if we're using the profits off these sales, uh, rather than just covering the cost, those profits aren't really the U.S. supplying it. Uh, It's the profits of money that we wouldn't have had any other way, and they don't really hit U.S. accounts because we'll just move the profits off the sale before it ever hits the U.S. Treasury, and we'll we'll send it down here to the Contras, and and that'll be fine. It's, It's sort of gray area, but sure, that's legal enough, legal light. Now, as you can imagine, this didn't really go well when it came out, but we'll get to that here in a few minutes. The other problem they had was how were they going to get weapons to Iran? The U.S. had not only publicly been saying don't give weapons to Iran, they also made it illegal. The Iranian state was on the terrorist watch list and and all these other things. They had to have an intermediary to get weapons to Iran. That intermediary... (laughs) in some of the most twisted irony I've ever seen, was Israel. Now, you may be saying Israel doesn't like Iran or Iraq. Why on earth are they doing backstage deals with them? Well, it's simple. They didn't like Iran or Iraq, but as long as these two were engaged in a grueling and destructive war with each other, they weren't focusing on Israel. And Israel is nothing if not extremely pragmatic when it comes to their national defense. So they agreed to arrange weapon sales to Iran as the intermediary, uh, mostly just to keep these two nations completely 
against the ropes and not focusing on anything Israel was doing, i.e. in their conflict with Lebanon, which was, again, backed by Iran. So the way this worked is the U.S. effectively sold the weapons to Israel, and, uh, and again, in a significant markup, more Israel would sell the weapons to uh, Iran, and by selling it to Israel, we weren't directly sponsoring a terrorist nation. We were simply selling it to our ally, and then they were passing it along, and um, that was okay. So this was the scheme they came up with. Now, the scheme itself kicked off from 1984 through 1986, and the success wasn't exactly great. So first off, Iran never actually warmed up to the U.S. In fact, Iran immediately realized that they were being grossly overcharged for the weapons, and they were pretty pissed off about it. But they were also in a bad situation because their military was losing lots of people, and they were running out of gear, and they needed these weapons because no one else would sell to them. And so they grudgingly paid the overinflated prices for the weapons in order to keep the war effort going and stop Iraq from invading them. Uh, but they weren't happy about it, and it would just be one more nail in the coffin of things that Iran was pissed at the U.S. about, was being hosed on these weapon prices. Furthermore, Hezbollah didn't give a shit that we were selling weapons to Iran, and only released a handful of hostages and kept most of them firmly imprisoned. Um, and in fact, they would do things like release a hostage and then go kidnap another American. Release two, go kidnap two more Americans basically ensuring that they always maintained their leverage but were adhering to the general principle of the agreement, and there was fuck all the U.S. could do about it. We were just getting rolled left, right, and center. Meanwhile, the Sandinistas were turning out to be just as brutal as the Contras, and no matter how much weapons were being sent in there and how many uh, stacks of money were being sent in, it was never quite enough for the Sandinistas to actually overcome. The Sandinistas... Um, were were able to hold down the fort because they had a lot of public opinion on their side, at least internally in Nicaragua. And the Contras were kind of looked at as the elites um, and were also pretty much looked at as assholes for their indiscriminate attacks on civilian targets. Not to mention that it would soon come out that the Contras were trying to find additional funding for their forces, and so they were selling cocaine, which the CIA was potentially smuggling out of the country for them uh, in order to give them additional funding. So despite all of – you know, and this would all blow up, we you know, with, with Reagan's say no to drugs and the – the you know war against drugs that uh, that started kicking off under that administration to find out that the U.S. government was actively selling weapons to terrorists and helping smuggle drugs out of their country is kind of not a great thing. It's not a good look. But here we are. That's how it goes sometimes. So how did this all fall apart might be your next question. So in October of 1986 – Corporate Air Services flight HPF-821 is shot down in Nicaragua by a Sandinista soldier. Um, there were four people on the plane. Three of them died. One of them managed to parachute off and managed to survive on the run in the jungle for about a day before he was caught while sleeping. It was Eugene Hassenfuss. Uh, maybe mispronouncing his name, and if so, I apologize. At any rate, he gets captured and... And the most un-James Bond thing he could possibly do pretty much immediately admits that he's a member of the CIA. And because he's a government agent with the CIA, 
they can't interrogate him or torture him, and they should just let him go or risk the full wrath of the U.S. government coming down on him. Unsurprisingly, this didn't exactly play terribly well. The Sandinistas didn't give a shit the fact he was CIA, but instead recorded his confessions, had him jot them all down, and then released it to the international community. Um, the United States, of course, immediately disavows all knowledge and says there's no way this guy's CIA, absolutely not. We'd have nothing to do with it. The plane, meanwhile, they go out to the wreckage of it and find it's just littered with landmines, guns, ammunition, and all sorts of other uh, things, including stacks of money. And so effectively, what it looks like is that the United States is funneling money and weapons and all that sort of good stuff to the Contras, uh, which is something that Congress had specifically made illegal. Now, the Reagan administration says they have nothing to do with it, and it's complete bullshit, and you know all of that, don't, don't pay any attention to it. But a mere month later, on November 3rd of 86, a senior Iranian official who is downright pissed off at the hypocrisy that the Islamic Republic is working with the great Satan by buying their weapons, he decides to leak the details of the Iranian weapons sales through the Israeli intermediaries to a newspaper, and it blows up internationally. Congress is furious and starts a full-scale investigation. Now, Reagan denies having anything to do with this. He denies they circumvented the law or that there was any sort of a guns for hostage scheme in play. He says absolutely not. And keep in mind, Reagan was the guy who, after taking office, famously and often said, we will never negotiate with terrorists. And now everything that he said seemed to be kind of bullshit because you've got the Contras getting weapons. You've got uh, Iran, which had been flagged as a terrorist nation, getting weapons. And it all seems like pure chaos. Well, Colonel Oliver Norworth comes forward, and he takes most of the blame. He gets called before Congress, and he eventually goes to court, and he's charged with a ton of things, which we'll get into in a minute. But pretty much during his Congress testimony, he admits that he did all sorts of these things. He admits that he shredded documents and that he was um, engaged in a cover-up to protect the administration and that he you know, was running as the quarterback on this convoluted scheme to get hostages released by, you know, using Israel to get weapons to uh, Iran and then taking the markup and using that to help fund the Contras down in South America. And, um, you know, he says, yep, that's me. I did all of it. Now, the other funny thing is when Congress grills him on this, he uses the Nazi defense at Nuremberg. His, his defense is, I was just following orders. I was a good soldier, and I was just following orders. Now, North claims Reagan knew all of the details about the plan and that he was fully informed and signed off on it and gave Colonel North orders to go out and execute on this. Reagan, on the other hand, has a very different position on things. Reagan claims that he had no significant knowledge of the particular um, – machinations that were happening. Reagan admits that he did give a very broad order that he wanted the Contras, you know, supported any way that they could legally, and he wanted those hostages released any way that they could legally, but he left all these specifics to his staff to figure out. At the end of the day, there would be three key points that Reagan would use to defend himself. He would say, one, he had health issues because of the uh, the polyp that was removed uh, and the surgery was happening that was malignant. 
Um, the on stages of his Alzheimer's would be used as defense. And the number of documents he signs, he can't possibly know what all exactly is in all these reports he signs because he's the president. He signs a lot of things, and he can't be expected to know every little thing he signs. Uh, and lastly, Reagan would flat out tell you that he had a hands-off management style. He would give a general directive of what he wanted done and expect his subordinates to carry it out uh, according to the letter of the law, but without really going into the details. You know, he would just just give them the general idea and let them run with it. Well, nothing concrete ever ties to Reagan or Bush Sr. and how much they knew or didn't know. However, North Poindexter and some dozen other people in the administration are indicted and convicted of a whole laundry list of charges, obstruction of justice, conspiracy, perjury, withholding evidence, illegal use of government funds, defrauding the government, alteration, destruction of evidence. Hell, there were some people that actually wanted to bring them up on charges of aiding the and abetting the enemy or treason since they were selling weapons to terrorist organizations. Now, that part didn't happen, but these good dozen people were brought up and found guilty on a number of these charges. Um, ultimately, everyone who was convicted would either A, have their convictions overturned on appeal due to technicalities, and those who didn't get it turned over on appeal would be cleared by George Bush Sr., who did a mass series of presidential pardons for everyone involved in the Iran-Contra affair during his last days in office after he lost his election against Bill Clinton. Really wild the timing on that, isn't it? Yeah. Now, how much did Reagan know about this? And that's a good question, a question that we don't really have any kind of a significant answer to. I mean, President Reagan's obviously dead now, and it's probably not like he would tell us, and there are conflicting counts. You've got numerous different people that say they were in meetings with Reagan and that he was briefed on the exact details of the operation. On the other hand, you have Reagan who, by his public admissions and his memoirs, uh, flat out said that he had no knowledge of it or only vague knowledge that he wanted it done but didn't know how they were doing it. Um, and you have other staffers that have come forward and said it's not really clear you know, if he was ever briefed or if he was paying attention or whatever. And you know, When he was briefed, he was on pain medicine from his, his cancer surgery, so he may not have been in his right mind. And and, you know, there's the Alzheimer's thing and all of this. So there's really not a clear answer on how much Reagan knew. Most people will admit that Reagan did have a fairly hands-off management style. He, he would give people a directive and then just kind of let them run with it oftentimes. So his defense isn't entirely inconceivable. He may not have known all of the granular specifics, or maybe he did. It really doesn't matter now. He's not in office and he's not alive. So what can you do? Then you've got Bush Sr. Now, Bush Sr. Um, is an interesting character because he was the vice president at the time, previously had been director of the CIA. Um, and Bush Sr., you know, as the vice president, you would think he would probably be in on these things. But during the actual time of the crisis, Bush Sr. didn't actually get a whole lot of blowback on this. In fact, he was the guy who had the least amount of criticism of anyone in the administration. Everyone just sort of assumed that Bush had no fucking clue what was going on and he really didn't face a lot of a lot of inquiry later on um after bush senior's death uh his his personal diaries during that time would become public and it seems like from his diary bush knew a lot more than people thought um one of the quotes in bush's diary after this uh, iran contra affair comes to light 
is him musing about how he's one of only a handful of people on the planet that knows all of the details of the uh, Iran-Contra affair. And, you know, basically nobody knows and he can't say anything, uh, you know, without it being an issue. And so that certainly implies that he knew quite a lot. And you have to assume that if Bush Sr. as the vice president knew all these details, it's a logical conclusion that perhaps Reagan did as well. Although, again, not explicitly spelled out, so we just don't know. At the end of the day, what did we really manage to accomplish in all of this? Well, at the end of the day, we completed the crackerjack move of furthering the divide between uh, uh, the Islamic Republic of Iran and the U.S., just driving that wedge a little bit deeper. We ultimately dragged on a war and sold a lot of weapons to Saddam Hussein, who a decade later we would wind up being involved in the Gulf War and blowing up anyways, and then another decade after that we'd roll in there and finish the job off. Um, But what did that actually accomplish? Who the hell can say? Meanwhile, um, from the Sandinista point of view, the Contras pretty much more or less collapsed after U.S. funding died out, and the Sandinistas, ironically enough, actually got voted out of office after a number of years. They eventually would get voted back in, but yeah, there was a just fairly traditional set of elections, and most of them got voted out, and 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 yeah, pretty much all we did was meddle in that country's politics and accomplish fuck all as well. Um Humorously enough, there was actually some correspondence that came to light a number of years after all this where Manuel Noriega down in Panama um, had talked to Oliver North and and members of the National Security Council that, you know, because even they knew that the Contras were not great, that they were doing really bad stuff. And so it's funny because they had made sort of like this contingency plan with uh, the dictator in Panama that – you know, if the Contras won, that Panama would go in and wipe out the Contras in order to get rid of them, and the U.S. would sell them weapons and support them in the process. So, I mean, Jesus, we nobody has sold more illegal weapons than the fucking U.S. government. I mean, my lord, they were just trying to put. My goodness, outrageous, outrageous. Um, but at the end of the day, the Sandinista movement more or less fell apart for a number of years uh, with. Very little intervention from us, and and that's that. Um, yeah. So at the end of the day, there was this wily e. coyote scheme that accomplished, as best I can tell, jack shit, other than ruining a number of people's careers and supplying a lot of weapons to a lot of bad dudes across the globe. Um, yeah, that's what we did. Not. One of our better moves, but um, it was a move, so there's that. At any rate, that is the story of the Iran-Contra affair. Uh, There's obviously, of course, other details I didn't have time to get into, but that that gives you the broad strokes and even some of the deeper details that um, most people just don't know these days. But yeah, that's the thing that happened. So, with that being said, this is Jordan Driscoll reminding you that I was only following orders. See you guys on the next one. Join us again next week on the Oil & Gas Geopolitics Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com.